This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove. Video conferencing and social media apps like Zoom, House Party, and TikTok have exploded in popularity during these times of global social distancing. And while all these apps became much more popular for regular targeted users, will this significant increase in usage have lasting impact on these companies in terms of value, brand reputation, available security features, diversification of services offered, or even privacy regulations? To discuss these issues, I welcome today Los Angeles-based attorney Dominique Shelton Leipzig. Dominique is a partner in Perkins Coy's Privacy and Data Security Group and co-chairs the firm's AdTech Privacy and Data Management team. She has been practicing IP, media, and privacy law for over 25 years, and she is a board member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals and the author of two landmark books on privacy and data for businesses. Thank you so much, Dominique, for joining us today. Thank you for having me so much, Audrey. While most of these apps have implemented sophisticated security and privacy protections and even offer tailored features to users who want to go the extra mile, can you tell us more, Dominique, about the measures implemented by Zoom to tackle these issues, their effectiveness and the consequences on the long run for the company itself? And for instance, what about its brand reputation? Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned this because brand reputation is key. So uh, Zoom had actually been in existence for about eight years before uh, this explosion, like you said, and their users. And uh, it's the type of thing as a startup or as you're building, uh, lots of times companies tend to look at privacy and data security as an add-on or maybe not pay as much attention to it. I think what was surprising uh, was the fact that there, with the ramp up in this uh, tool that had a great user interface, there had been very little attention focused on potential misuse of the product and steps have been taken since uh, things like Zoom bombing had occurred and appropriation of credentials. What happened is that there, in addition to the very public investigation by the New York Attorney General, there are in California and in other jurisdictions over, uh, I think, 14 consumer putative class actions that have been filed and none of that is great for uh, brand reputation. I think that steps have been taken by Zoom to address uh, some of the concerns by adding in two-factor authentication, uh, unique uh, URLs for particular Zoom meetings, passcodes that need to be in- incorporated. But you know, the reality is if those credentials are shared outside of the invitees, that you can still have this very disruptive Zoom bombing. And this is one of those things that uh, a lot of this is understanding in the consumer uh, community as well that privacy and data security are all of our responsibilities and keeping uh, credentials for confidential communications private are, are important for participants in these uh, uh, video chat uh, tools that we must all use right now. Mm-hmm. And security is not only addressed from the platform end, actually, as many risks are most often triggered by circumstances under the user's control. How can we, at our individual level, mitigate those risks? And how do you manage them yourself as a legal practitioner? Well, first and foremost, as a legal practitioner, privacy and confidence in communications and client communications are 
paramount uh, for our business and for the services that we do provide. So being really thoughtful about the mediums that you use to communicate. I do not communicate passwords uh, over uh, text or uh, in chat for the reasons that we were just talking about here. They could be so easily shared and misappropriated and given to the wrong party. So it's very important for confidential client communications that that be uh, maintained. For just any business communication, because so much of what's being discussed now with remote working and distributed workforces, uh, we have very business critical, confidential information that's being shared with teams that are in multiple time zones and the importance of keeping uh, controls in place like two-factor authentication, waiting rooms so that you can assure that who's coming into the call is who you expect to have on the call, uh, and uh, really just monitoring uh, the and understanding the tools like, for example, like Zoom has right now where you can eject a user that isn't authorized to be on the call. Now, that's difficult when you have multiple parties, like hundreds or the enterprise licenses for Zoom, where you might have 200, 300 people on a call. It's hard to identify and eject that one party, but just figuring out really how to use the tools yourself are also really important um, to maintaining that confidentiality of the communication. U.S. Uh, lawmakers and security experts have recently expressed concern about the security of TikTok and its data collection practices. We even hear about a potential shutdown of this app, House Party, where uh, users can instantly join any open group that contains at least one person they are friends with without code or invitation is facing litigation under CCPA, so the California Consumer Privacy Act. As the aggregated volume of daily users still keeps climbing for both of these apps in particular, is there some kind of momentum happening towards more privacy protections influenced by regulations such as general data protection regulation known as uh, GDPR. Thank you. Um, and yes, that is happening. So what we are starting to see now is that many consumers um, are starting to want to know more about the data. They want to know how data is being used and what it's being used for, who it's going to be shared with, and what protections companies have in place. And to that end, we have movements like what we have in California. We have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which does address many of the uh, areas that have been identified by GDPR. Uh, things like transparency with respect to what data is being collected, the sources of the data, and third parties data is being shared with. And with uh, the CCPA's uh, requirement to disclose the sources of data, under our California Civil Code section 1798.110, this is even goes beyond uh, the transparency of GDPR Article 13. Also, there's a granularity associated with the CCPA with respect to uh, knowing what types of data is, are sold or disclosed for a business mm -hmm. purpose. The selling of data is something, uh, that sort of level of detail in terms of how data is used is at a specificity level um, it's required by the California Civil Code Section 1798.115 in the CCPA, and that's not a requirement of GDPR Article 1314, although, uh, you know, how you're using data is supposed to be disclosed, but that specific about selling is a little bit broader. We also have a definition of personal information in California that includes households, so it's not just data that's 
reasonably capable of individually identifying a person like GDPR Article 4, but it's actually also a person or a household. Uh, where we don't have as much is in the area of, you know, limiting uh, the data uses. And right now under CCPA, we don't identify what categories of personal information are sensitive or are special categories like GDPR Article 9. Those gaps are in the process of being filled uh, or potentially filled with the California Privacy Rights Act, which is being proposed for our ballot in November of uh, 2020, and it has qualified for the ballot, and California voters will be able to decide at that point. Dominique, would you like to say a word about uh, the end of the privacy shield? Yes, uh, this was a landmark decision by the CJEU in validating privacy shield, which is the vehicle that uh, some 5,400 major corporations in the U.S. were using, at least in part, to provide adequacy for importing EU resident data into the U.S. Because as you know, uh, the EU's adequacy decision for the U.S., which was based on Privacy Shield, was invalidated. As we've had time to digest the decision, uh, what is clear is that U.S. law in and of itself will not provide the kind of appropriate safeguards under standard contractual clauses or binding corporate rules based on the invalidation of Privacy Shield and the court's reasoning for that, which is premised on, on the U.S.'s national security initiatives and access to data um, mm -hmm. under 702 of FISA, as well at, which is our Foreign Intelligence um, Surveillance Act and under Executive Order 12333, which applies to uh, companies that operate the internet and the backbone of the internet by having cable and uh, circuitry and routers on the floor of the uh, Atlantic Ocean bed. So uh, when we took a look and really started dissecting what is important to uh, activists mm -hmm. like Max Tram and NYOB.EU, which is his nonprofit that he runs, it appears that they're focused on those companies that are subject to those two foreign intelligence methods for gathering foreign intelligence and gathering information. So mm -hmm. many companies are not subject to Section 702 or Executive Order 12333. They're neither operating the Internet for purposes of the executive order or responsible for being an electronic communication service provider, meaning they're either a cloud provider or telco or, or something of that nature. So uh, they're case-by-case -case analysis that, you know, controllers and processors, when it involves the importation of data to the U.S., that they will need to engage in to make standard contractual clauses last or to make intra-company agreements based on standard contractual uh, clauses last or even really to examine BCRs fresh. So this is an effort that companies are getting their arms around now. And uh, then there needs to be a longer-term political fix. Uh, and I think you're going to see more U.S. companies uh, very active in that in terms of pushing for both congressional leadership, uh, Senate leadership, as well as the executive branch to take a leadership role in working out a solution that can last for companies. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. Let's go back to uh, the video conferencing tools uh, and the way they change the legal professions and maybe the relationships also with clients and with courts. Do you think remote working is here to stay? I mean, even after the pandemic is under control and 
is there any lesson you have learned first hand and you would like to share or any unexpected adjustment you had to make? Yes, I was fascinated by uh, some of the comments I think uh, Bill Gates made uh, at Microsoft about the the way that communications will change. He talked about the idea of the one-on-one -on -one business meeting um, that isn't essential, that that's going to be a thing of the past. It's an interesting prospect. I think what, one thing I wasn't expecting was how uh, efficiently some of these um, video chat uh, meetings, whether it's by WebEx, Microsoft Teams, uh, Zoom, uh, and others, um, how efficiently they are working, right? Google Hangouts, Google mm -hmm. Video. Uh, they, they, it's, there's an efficiency associated with it. You know, these tools before were always present, but I think we always felt like, well, we need to wait until we can see each other in person at Intel, or we can wait to see each other in person at this event, and then we will, you know, have these conversations. But given that we don't know when it's going to be uh, sitting in Los Angeles right now where uh, COVID numbers are climbing and we are not, we're still in our first wave, uh, when we don't know where, when it will be safe to get together in person, I think these tools have been remarkably efficient in maintaining the content and contacts that are so important to, to business and to also family life. For me, on a, a personal note, I was one of those frequent flyer people. Uh, I uh, was flying on average two to three times a week. Uh, I was on planes from one, you know, either within the U.S. or globally for my global privacy and data security practice. Travel was a regular part of my world. I think last year I took something like 47 trips. Uh, and it's been that way for, you know, I've been, been practicing uh, in Los Angeles since 91. I've been doing the privacy work since the late 90s, and I've just seen an explosion of these cases and, and importance to speak with clients one-on-one. -on -one. The only way that my practice has, has actually been able to uh, not only stay the same, but actually excel and thrive is through the ability to keep these personal communications alive through these other means. The visual, you know, actually able to see teams is very important periodically. It doesn't have to be every call. But I think once, twice a month, being able to see your clients is really helpful. Will we go back on planes? Well, I think it's going to be a while before uh, that's going to be something that everybody embraces. For a while, we're going to be in this alternative sphere. There are certain things that we miss from an in-person meeting. There's a lot that we can gain from these other interactions, which are not the same as in-person, but at the same time, a facilitate uh, an ability to bond, which is what the, the legal profession is all about mm -hmm. in, in our relationships. And do you see any uh, evolution also with um, in the relationships you may have with judges and, you know, on the litigation part? How do you perceive uh, the, the change? Yeah, you know, I think judges, what we're starting to see is that there are less and less uh, tolerance for delays caused by COVID, missing deadlines, not appearing on hearings. The judges are impatient with that because of the tools that have been put in place to allow business to go forward. So I think there is an expectation from judges that attorneys will adopt the technology and move forward with their obligations. Um, what'll be interesting is to see really, you know, how trials evolve with juries. Uh, there are a couple of trials I understand have gone forward and just making sure that the jury continues to pay attention while they're mm -hmm. on video, you know, all important. We did a very interesting webinar with judge, uh, magistrate judge, uh, Suzanne Siegel, uh, who is now retired uh, from the, the federal bench 
and is now um, overseeing arbitrations and mediations online and through Zoom. And it was a, a great conversation that we had with her. And she talked about the same things I'm talking about here, the efficiency, how they've been able to get cases solved. In fact, they've handled over you know 200 of these uh, Zoom mediations and uh, arbitrations and so forth um, at the uh, alternate mediation and alternate dispute firm that she's with. So there are many, many ways that business can go forward, communications must go forward. And we do have an obligation to our clients uh, to sort of keep the high standards that judges are expecting of us uh, and our clients are expecting of us to solve their problems, uh, notwithstanding you know, the communication hurdles we do have. Dominique, you have advised uh, many media and tech companies on data issues over the course of your career. What's your advice for brand owners willing to expand their digital footprint to better anticipate potential risks and to vet new vendors properly? Well, vetting new vendors properly is key right now in this COVID era that we are in. There might be um, a a sense of urgency and importance to bring on a vendor right away. It's important to understand that proper vendor vetting doesn't have to take years or months. Uh, it can be done in a matter of days, but the right questions need to be asked. Uh, first of all, uh, with respect to cross-border transfers, you know, some of the questions that uh, Max Schrems group at nyob.eu is calling for data exporters in Europe to ask of data importers obviously should be added to the vendor vetting list. You know, are they subject to national security requests under FISA Section 702? Are they considered a remote uh, service provider under 18 U.S.C. Section 2711, which is our Electronic Communications Privacy Act? And is that vendor subject to national security requests under Executive Order 12333? That's going to make a big difference as to what whether there is a risk of uh, data being accessed in a manner that may not be transparent to EU residents and for which there may not be judicial relief. If those issues are not likely to come up, like they involve HR data for companies who've never received a national security request, that can be vetted quickly. You can also very quickly ask whether the vendor has had any prior privacy or data security, regulatory investigations, or lawsuits, and then find out from the vendor what has been taken to mitigate those. Assuming none of those things have happened, you can certainly find out whether the vendor on the data security side, has any kind of data security standard that they are mapping to, whether that be ISO 27002, which is for vendors or for clouds. ISO has a cloud uh, certification or cybersecurity framework, or if they're mapping perhaps to the uh, Center for Internet Studies Critical Security Controls, which is a set of 20 controls that the California Attorney General has identified. Mm -hmm. Depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, there might be more or less emphasis on one of these data security tools, and you'll want to ask those questions. One of the key things that companies get in trouble with is not addressing known vulnerabilities of a vendor. Don't put blinders on when you're hiring a vendor. If there's something out that about that vendor that could quickly be Googled, literally, if you can type in the vendor's name and data privacy and or data breach and find 10 cases or 10 articles, those are things that, that should be discussed to make sure that they've been remediated before you bring that vendor on. Uh, those are just a few suggestions, but there are vendor impact assessment forms uh, that don't have to take a number of pages, but should be you know, part of the procurement process. More importantly, in order to minimize risk, you need a comprehensive privacy and data security program. And fortunately, you know, the CNIL actually in France came up with a six-step process for GDPR compliance 
that works very nicely and dovetails very nicely with the comprehensive privacy and data security programs that the FTC has ordered in consent orders in the U.S. and that state attorney generals have ordered in their enforcement actions. And it involves these six steps. First, ensure that you have somebody in the organization or a team leading privacy and data security. That's phase one. Phase two, inventory the data. Phase three, conduct a legal risk assessment. Phase four, for high-risk processing involving sensitive categories of data like medical, health, financial, race, gender, uh, union membership, et cetera, make sure that you have a specific plan for mitigating those risks. And in phase five, take the risks that you've identified in phases three and four and develop external facing policies, internal facing policies, procedures, training and vendor management to mitigate those risks. And then in phase six, keep an auditable record that you can check against when you take on either any new acquisitions, new companies, or uh, new data processing policies so that you can ensure that you are keeping in accordance with plan. And at a minimum in California, you will need to revisit that plan every year annually because there is a requirement to update and revisit your privacy uh, notices externally facing every year. So those are my tips. Dominique, do you anticipate new issues or disruptions or opportunities coming based on what happened these last few months? Yeah, I think the new issues that um, I am uh, projecting for that will be uh, undoubtedly facing us in 20, third and fourth quarter, and then also as reopening continues in 2021, is the collection for opening purposes of personal information and personal health information just to be able to reopen economies. Uh, another area is, are the sensitive areas like children and just any data associated with children I know will be of high priority to our California regulators. And I would also say globally, you'll start to see more of that. So look out for those two areas, COVID-19 related health checks, testing, everything associated with artificial intelligence as it relates to COVID-19, the use of artificial intelligence to develop robotics, to enhance social distancing efforts, everything from that to the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to find a vaccine. Uh, those are the types of things that we just saw the EDPB come out with guidance on artificial intelligence in February. And that's only going to be enhanced about whether that data can be re-identified to a person and whether the algorithm can be re-identified to a person such that privacy and data security need to be addressed. It seems that the Europeans have already reached that conclusion, and I assume that in California with our CCPA that you will see a similar result. But stay tuned for that. Those are going to be um, very hot issues in third, fourth quarter 2020 and uh, first quarter 2021, in my view. What is the most disrupting innovation for you? I think machine learning is uh, the most disruptive. The few uh, words I'll say there is that it has the opportunity to create uh, new opportunities for humans, but also displace the human interactions to a very large degree. And we need to have a plan for how we integrate machine learning into uh, our society so that it doesn't create the dispossession and lack of hope for those jobs that will be replaced with that technology. So, uh, could you name a word that would summarize uh, the last decade and the one you expect for the decade that is just beginning? I think the last decade was really one of transition. And I think the next 
10 years are going to be about transformation. In a very fundamental way, we are in the middle of a shift of transforming our societies into digitally propelled. Every single industry will be digitally propelled going forward. And that shift is going to uh, be an exciting and also one that will need to involve policymakers, regulators, consumer groups, and business to make successful. Who is your role model, if any? Well, I, I have tremendous admiration for Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton. I do see how much she has endured and her brilliance is uh, those two things, the endurance and brilliance are, are things I admire tremendously. And the last book you read? The last book I read, I'm still reading, um, is uh, Sapiens by Yuval um, uh, Noah Nuval, uh, because it's about the archaeological uh, history of the human being and this idea of transformation that's happened over many different periods, um, going from the shift between Neanderthal and Homo sapien, but it reads like a novel. Thank you so much, Dominique. Thank you so much, Audrey. I appreciated uh, this discussion with you. So my guest today was Los Angeles-based attorney Dominique Shelton Leipzig, partner at Perkins Coy. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover Brand and New. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.